Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Storytime with Boone. Thanks again for downloading it. Next week, I'm going to be doing another Storytime with Boone live at the Red True Barbecue Restaurant in Manchester. The date's going to be Monday 9th of May and it's going to be at 6pm. The previous guests were Bez uh, for episode 5 and Terry Christian for episode 10. Next week, my very special guest will be Shed 7 frontman. Rick Witter, a man I've now known and loved for about 22 years. If you want to be one of only 50 people in the room listening to me and Rick in conversation, admittance is free, but tickets will be distributed on a first-come, 1st first serve basis. For all the information and to register, go to this address, boon.eventbrite.co.uk. That's boon.eventbrite.co.uk. Eventbrite is B-R-I-T-E. Get on there and register, and we'll even... Uh, give you a free beer and some nibbles when you get down there. And don't worry if you're not lucky enough to get tickets for the actual event, because the next episode of Storytime with Boone, that's episode 18, will be that entire conversation dropped into your inbox the day after it happens. Thanks again to Red's True Barbecue and Distorted Productions for helping me to get Storytime with Boone out there. On this episode, I'm going to talk about the time the Inspirals toured America for the first time on a, a big fancy rock and roll tour bus. Key words in this particular tale, uh, blizzards guns and frozen toilets i'll tell you about a very scurry moment me and my wife charlie had in our garden last week and the results are in as well for the hashtag project rabbits <laughs> the listener survey that i launched last week to see if you think the boom family should accept the offer of two bunny rabbits uh, looking for a new home the votes are all counted i'll announce the results on this episode of story time Every week I talk about a particular song that I've written uh, and how it came about. On this podcast, I'll be talking about a song that I wrote about two of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. They spent decades pretty much living on the doorstep of the, the White House for a particular cause. I'll tell you about that song. Uh, it's a song called Sleep Well Tonight. The unsigned artist that you're going to hear at the end of this episode is Seeker, a young lady with a gorgeous track called After I'm Gone. If you're an unsigned band and you're looking to get in touch with me, uh, I've set up an unsigned music podcast called Set2Go. That's Set and Number 2 Go. Send me music or links to your music via Twitter at CB Set2Go. And Set2Go is available uh, as a free download on iTunes, as is Storytime with Boone. You can also follow me on Twitter at TheRealBoon. And don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist that I put together every week where you can hear full versions of the tracks on the episode and other tracks as well which are in some way connected to the stories that I've been telling. If you get a minute, leave us a message on the iTunes page. Just tell us what you think of it. And if you've not subscribed already, uh, do so. Sign up and that way it'll drop into your device every week when it's done. Okay, let's do it. Story time with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. Between 1990 and 1994, the Inspiral Carpets toured around the USA several times, at least once a year. And the first trip in 1990 was a short trip just to introduce us to the American market. So on that visit, we played a few of the major cities like New York, LA, Boston, San Francisco, maybe Toronto, up in Canada. We had like five or six uh, cities on that visit. And we pretty much flew city to city on that trip and uh, we got chauffeured about in limousines or minibuses or whatever. But on our subsequent trips, because we were doing several weeks of uh, gigs in the States, we always uh, used to hire a massive tour bus to carry the band and the crew about. So we'd be doing thousands of miles, like, you know, day in, day out for weeks on end to not every corner of the USA, but, you know, a lot of a lot of different cities and that. And we'd be in this state-of-the-art, like, 12, 13-bed bus, basically, a big metal tube on wheels full of herberts from the north of England in spiral carpets. And our vehicle of choice belonged to a big rock and roll buzz rental company whose name I'm not going to mention. 
And I'm also not going to mention the name of the particular driver that we got to work with on that visit because, um, well, some of what I'm going to tell you about is probably a bit against the law, really. This particular bus company, they supplied the vehicle for our first US tour and we fell in love with the driver who took us around the States on that trip. I'm going to refer to him as John, right? Now, whenever possible after that trip, we'd always ask for John to be our driver. We'd go to the same bus company and we'd say, we want John if he's available. And his buzz was like a complete work of art, probably the most beautiful high-tech rock and roll coach on the planet at that moment in time. You know, this was the, the best company in America for this kind of vehicle. And this particular buzz was like the flagship buzz. This was the, the best one they had. And it was also pretty much John's home. He lived in it. it, it from what I can remember, I think he'd split up. He didn't have a family. And he just lived on the road. He loved life on the road. And he absolutely loved this buzz of his. And it was completely decked out in all the latest high-tech electrical entertainment devices of the time. So FM radio, cassette players, uh, VHS videotape players. And, and if I remember rightly, to play CDs in it, we had to plug our own portable CD players, our um, Sony Discmans or Discmen. We had to plug them into the hi-fi system. That's how we had to listen to CDs back in the 1990, and there were no mobile phones back then, so in order to phone home, you'd have to either find a phone box, which would mean sticking a 25-cent coin into the slot every 10 seconds while you're talking, or you could reverse the charges, like call collect or whatever they call it in the States, or you could wait till you checked into a hotel and make a call then. John even had on the bus, he had two electric guitars mounted proudly in the front lounge of the bus, and they'd been given to him personally by... I don't know if it was Van Halen or Bon Jovi. It might have been one of each, but he had two guitars, both signed. Let's say Bon Jovi. Let's say it was like um, Richie Sambora's guitar and maybe Eddie Van Halen as well, right? Can't remember either, but these two guitars were pride of place at the front of the bus. Both had um, nice handwritten messages to John, you know, personalised with a Sharpie and all that. And John, he wasn't the tallest guy that we'd ever met, but his, his personality was massive and it was easy to see from the moment we met him why he was so popular in the rock and roll fraternity, especially some of the, the other British bands that were working stateside around the time. Some of the other boys had um, used this bus company and this chap and said it was cool. And like a lot of young blokes uh, from Britain touring the USA for the first time in a band, I found the whole thing just absolutely incredible, you know, visiting all these places that I'd grown up seeing on TV or reading about at school, places like the Empire State Building and Sunset Boulevard and the Griffiths Observatory in LA. Going to Dallas and seeing the spot where John F. Kennedy got shot in uh, 1963 and I'd often sit for hours on end up at the front of the bus sat by John on this like this jump seat that they had um, next to the driver's seat and I'd be there with my shades on feet up on the dashboard just watching the United States of America unfold in front of my eyes as, as John told me all sorts of rock and roll anecdotes and that and on one trip really early on in the first tour this is like a five week tour so in the first couple of days we're travelling on some big interstate highway somewhere and I told John that I did a lot of driving back home in England and I was driving big vans and medium-sized trucks and stuff like that. And he just says to me, do you fancy having a go at driving this then? And I said, what? He said, do you fancy having a go at driving this, this beast? And I went, yeah, yeah, too right. I wouldn't mind having a go at that. So I'm thinking he's going to pull over somewhere at some point, give me a few minutes of, you know, how to change gear. Uh, I mean, this thing's a monster, you know, it's a massive monster. It's like 50 foot long or something. 10 or 11 litre engine, something ridiculous like that. It's carrying one of Britain's hottest new bands. <laughs> so I thought, it's best to do it right. You know, he's going to pull over somewhere and give me a little lesson. Or... And then suddenly, as we're cruising down this freeway, 
and he stands up, steps to one side, still holding onto the steering wheel, still with his foot on the accelerator, and he says, there you go, Clint, it's all yours. So my arse goes a little bit, you know, he's stood up there driving on his motorway like 50, 60 mile per hour. And I quickly get into position and, you know, I get behind the wheel and he steps away and I, I, there I am, foot on pedal, driving a quarter of a million dollars worth of fine American automobile engineering down this interstate highway somewhere. And I did, I felt like king of the road at that moment in time. I felt absolutely bosh, you know what I mean? And then John says, he says, all right, man, I'm, I'm going to go and take a quick piss down the back. So he walks off down the bus and I'm sat there at the wheel of this bus thinking, this is great, this like, but what happens if, if I need to stop? You know, what if the cops try pulling me over? I don't even know where the handbrake is yet or anything. And after about 10 minutes, John reappears, comes back to the front where I'm driving and he starts showing me a few things. He says, this is the eatery, that's all, that's cool, that's the air conditioning, that's the radio, there's the brakes. <laughs> and then he says after a bit, he says, are you all right? I say, yeah, man, you're enjoying it, it feels good. And he says, listen, do you mind if I go and get my head down for a bit? And I'm like, well, I'll go for a sleep. He says, yeah, just go and get me a bit of a rest. I said, yeah, go on. if you're cool with it, John. I said, I'm, I'm cool with it. So, so he said, yeah. And he goes off and has a sleep. So on this five-week tour, I got to do quite a lot of driving. I was always sober when I did it, never dicking about and, you know, taking it easy, but never actually, well, insured or anything, you know what I mean? So <laughs> we did a gig in New Jersey one night and I was with, like, a lot of gigs on the tour we have what they call a day room. So some days you, you book a hotel just for the day and it's so that you can go somewhere for a nice bath or a shower, escape, you know, the rest of the gang for an hour or two, a bit of relief from the, you know, the confined madness of the bus. It's a day room. And it's that night, I was sat on the bus near the venue and uh, it was before the gig. And I was chatting to John. I said, listen, I'm going to go over to the day room and have a quick shower before the gig. And John says, not on your fucking own, you're not. Not around here. And I said, no, I'll be, I'll be all right. I'll be fine. And he insisted. He puts his coat on, climbs out of the bus with me, and we walk off in the direction of the hotel. And it was it's dark. It's a pretty, pretty rough part of town, you could tell. And he turns to me and he says, uh, hide that. And I said, hide what? He said, that fucking thing around your neck. And I, I used to wear um, an antique gold pocket watch around my neck all the time on a gold chain. So it's half, half a nod to the psychedelic era and half a nod to Flavor Flav, right? So walking through this place in New York, pocket watch took safely away in my jeans and that. And at that time of night, the place was very scary. And I'm not being itist or anything like that, but John, he was a good foot shorter than me. And I'm not exactly the toughest looking bugger around, you know what I mean? But back then I was really skinny and I'm dead pale and had this fucking ridiculous haircut on my head. I had white jeans on constantly. And I'm thinking, we're probably going to get murdered now, aren't we? And so John looks at me and he says, you okay, bro? And I said, yeah, I'm just uh, just thinking about stuff, you know, getting in the zone for tonight, for gig and that. And he says to me, you're not scared, are you? <laughs> I said, no, fuck, I'm not scared. Like laughing nervously. Me, scared? Nah, come on. <laughs> like that. And he could tell, he could tell I was a bit nervous. He said, look, Clint, don't be scared, man. We're safe. Look. And he pulls his jacket to one side looks me in the eye and winks. He's only got a big fucking gun stuck down the front of his kecks. Well, my arse went, my knees were wobbling a bit, but I carried on like I wasn't bothered. He's like that. I brought my fucking gun. <laughs> I always bring my fucking gun. We're going to be okay. He's like laughing to himself, looking around to see if anybody needed shooting or anything like that.
we did a gig in Detroit one night, and when we arrived uh, during the afternoon, the bus parked about 100 yards or so away from the hotel just down the street, and the temperature was like minus 40, minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. It was the most insanely cold atmosphere I've ever felt. And on the, on the short walk from the bus to the hotel, I could actually feel the tissues in my skin and my face freezing. You know, to this day, I've never experienced such coldness as that. And immediately after the gig, we set off for Vancouver, right? So this was going to be like a 37, 38-hour drive, two and a half thousand miles or something. We had a night off in between our Detroit gig and then Vancouver. And as soon as the buzz left the venue, the band and the crew, knowing that there's a long drive and a night off, they all started partying. And the buzz was stocked with like months worth of alcohol, in particular a lot of tequila. And earlier in that day, because I knew it was a long drive ahead, I'd suggested to John that I'll stay sober, I won't drink at the gig, I'll do some driving through the night so that we can, you know, give John a break and get us to Vancouver quicker. So John welcomed the offer. He, he said, yeah, let's do that. And uh, he, said, he said, I'll do the first bit because I've been napping while you were on stage in Detroit. And I said, yep, yeah, you and 500 others, John. <laughs> and I went to bed. So the party started in the front room, front lounge, should I say, right behind the driving seat. And there's a pair of curtains that you could pull across, you know, to prevent the driver from being distracted and prevent him getting overcome with all the smoke that was being generated by the party people and all that. And our tour manager at the time was a, a bloke from London, lovely bloke, Andrew Mancy, who's called Legends. And he oversaw the organising of some, like, sort of really pissed up poker game as soon as we left Detroit. And it was something like for every... Every time you forfeited a, a round or whatever, you had to down a shot of tequila, like, you know, for everybody who lost a round or whatever. So the party got started really quickly and got messy really quickly as I sneaked off for a kit. And as I said before, this was in the days before mobile phones, so I used to carry a small battery-operated uh, alarm clock in my bag, and I slept for a couple of hours that night, and then uh, my alarm went off and I got up, got my clothes on, went to the front of the bus, and the poker game was still going on. But it had become something else which involved a bit of wrestling, so they're all over each other, all lads and that. And the, the front lounge was just a mess, just a, a sea of bodies and booze. And, and so I walked past the, the, the madness and got to the front. Me and John did our switch over by stealth routine, which meant that we never actually needed to stop the bus. So I took the wheel, sat down, carried on, and John went off to his bunk for a very long sleep. And it was still like minus 40, minus 50-something outside. And as we got further into the trip, the weather was getting worse and worse and, and things behind the curtain were deteriorating too. I could hear Mansi starting to get loud and really agitated, a bit aggressive actually, if I'm being honest with you. But because he was a tour manager, normally he'd be the, you know, the, the man in charge of our well-being and all that. He was usually the most sensible person on, on, on the crew, you know what I mean? Always somebody that you could rely on to be level-headed and you know to be above all the shenanigans and all that life on the road. But on this occasion, he was losing the plot. He was completely going under this fellow. I could hear it all going on behind me. And I knew we had serious problems. And the toilet on the bus froze up. The temperature outside had completely turned everything to ice, including the, the flushing mechanism on the toilet and the, the U-bend, whatever they call it, just solid ice. And it wouldn't have been much of a problem normally, but at this point, you know, somewhere in North Dakota or whatever, with 10 people drinking every ounce of alcohol they could find and pissing by the fucking gallon down this toilet. And I noticed something was amiss when a, a large pool of warm piss started to appear under the curtain inside of me and then disappear again as it went you know, up a gentle incline and then back again, but more of it, steam coming off it and that. Like a really surreal game of peekaboo, you know, with a puddle of piss. Now you see me, now you don't. It just kept coming and going, this this piss, and it was literally flooding out of the toilet and up the bus through the party lounge and around my feet and these 
fuckers behind me just kept putting more piss down the toilet onto the ice. And I'm at the front driving with this big tsunami of fresh urine lapping around my best British night trainers. 120 quid high tops, black and white. And I'm shouting, lads, lads, can you not do something about all this piss? Come on, it's out of order. It's my trainers are getting wet here. Melt the ice with kettle or something. But they couldn't hear me because they, at this point, Mance is completely kicking off. All the band and the crew are wrestling with him. Curtains are like that. Boof, boof, like fish shapes coming through it, like some of Tom and Jerry and that. And I could hear the sound then, like splitting wood as Mance started ripping the guitars off the wall. John's prized Bon Jovi guitars, what well, both of them came off and I could hear him shouting that, Bon Jovi is shit, I hate Bon Jovi, mate. And you could hear his guitars going. And then our drummer Craig sticks his head around the curtain and says, Clint, I'll do this shit. Any chance you could pull over? See, the thing is, right, on these rock and roll buzzes, rule number one in every part of the world is simply no solids in the toilet, right? Because if you do, it stinks to buzz out. It's against the law. It's against the rock and roll law. I've seen grown men shit into a, a Tesco carrier bag and throw it out the window on the M1 rather than dropping the guts on the buzz and letting the mates down. It's true. Then someone else shouts, Clint, I'll do this shit as well. <laughs> so I'm thinking, I need to stop this buzz now. I need to wake John up. By now it was a total blizzard outside. Thinking, if I don't stop the buzz, they're all going to start shitting everywhere. Then the windscreen starts frosting up on the inside. And at one point, we're sliding sideways down this big freeway on the side of a bloody mountain and that. And there's empty bottles rolling around my feet and this sea of piss is getting deeper than it's been all night because we're going downhill at this point. <laughs> and I just want John. I just need him to come up and, and park this bus somewhere, you know what I mean? So I started shouting for Graham, our guitarist, Lammy, because I'm thinking he's probably the only other person on this absolute hell on wheels who might be sober enough to help me out. So I started shouting, Lammy, 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 and eventually sticks his head around the curtain. He says, you have to give us a minute. We're just trying to sort Mansi out. And they were literally fighting with him to get him in bed and, and, and wait for him to drift off into unconsciousness. They, they wanted him out of the way. And he'd eventually wake up like 15 hours later reciting passages from Apocalypse Now or something. And I don't think they actually knocked him out as such. I think they, it was more like they carried on hitting him until he agreed to stay in bed and go to sleep, which he did. So then Graham comes back to the front. I'm wrestling with the controls of the buzz like um, Tom Hanks in that film Apollo 13, <laughs> trying to keep everything in order. And I said to him, right, we really need to wake John up. And Graham says, we can't. And I said, why not? He said, well, there's, there's piss and spew everywhere. Mansi's trashed the Bon Jovi guitars. And I said, well, can we not reassemble the guitars? I like, just put gaffer tape on them or something. Or just throw them out the window so that he might not notice. We just, we've got to get John up. I'm starting to need a piss as well now at this point, so we've got to get John out of bed. So reluctantly, Graham makes his way down the bus through the sea of piss like Moses. And he starts trying to wake John up. And apparently it took a while, but eventually he woke him up. And I could hear John coming up the bus behind me. Fuck me, you fucking animals. What the fuck? My guitars, man, my fucking guitars. You fucking dirty animals. He's like, like and he, he rips the curtains back. And I'm there like that. All right, John, did you manage to get some Zeds, man? And he's like, that. my fucking buzz, man, my fucking buzz. They ruined my fucking buzz, man. <laughs> this is my fucking home. <laughs> and all I could think, oh, shit, this man's got a gun on him as well. And I just said to him, look, I think Mansi did it. <laughs> Blame it on Mansi. Anyway, so John seemed to settle down again as the that trip came to an end. So thirty-eight hours of a trip, and it was quite. It was a bit quiet, you know, as we arrived in Vancouver. But we all felt that we'd got away with it. Everybody on board was totally apologetic. And to his credit, Mansi, when he when he did reappear, he took the full blame for the entire episode. He was very gallant about it, and it was it was the best demonstration ever of a man taking one for the team, as he said. 
The view from the front of the bus as we arrived in Vancouver, as Vancouver appeared on the horizon, is one of the, a view that I'll never forget. It's still one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I still say to this day that Vancouver, the cityscape of the city as you approach it from the south, it's aesthetically unbeatable. It's the most beautiful city in the world. That's what I was thinking at the time, and I still think that these days. A couple of days later, the bus was making its way through Nevada or Arizona or somewhere like that. I'm on my bunk having a nap and I felt the bus pull over. I can hear people getting off the bus and I can hear John saying, come on, over here, over here. And I thought they're probably going for a piss or something. And then I hear the gun going off. I hear these gunshots, single shots, three or four of them about 20 seconds apart. And I'm thinking, and John laughing. I could hear John laughing, this mad cackle. And I'm thinking, Fuck, this is it. He's, he's executing us all to destroying his buzz and trashing his Bon Jovi guitars. And he started with Mansi and, and Noel. So I looked through the curtains in my bunk, see what was going on, couldn't see anybody, no sign of life whatsoever. Thinking, God, I'm the only one left. I slipped out of my bed. I thought, I might have to run here. I'm going to have to run across the desert in my undies here. So the curtains on the buzz were all drawn and I leaned over in the back lounge and just peeked through the curtains slowly, just as another shot were going off. And outside, just there in the desert, the side of the buzz, I could see about... Probably about 50 yards in the bush, John was there shooting cactuses, laughing dead loud with a couple of lads looking on. I think he even let some of the lads have a go at shooting as well. Fingers in their ears out, he's like, pissing himself. I think I went back to bed, I had a little cry, I think. Is there such a thing as a, a relief cry? I had one of them anyway, I just was so happy that he wasn't actually executing us all. There's an album which will always, without fail, transport me back to that tour. And our road in old Gallagher, uh, I'd picked up a, a cassette tape in the UK just before we left for the tour. And it was by the KLF. And it was an album which the KLF made. I think it was sort of a bit of a folly at the time. I don't think they ever intended it to be, you know, properly commercially released as an album. And it was based on the old idea of uh, ambient music or new age music, as they used to call it, chill out music. And it was a fairly new concept at that time. It was a sort of perfect come down album, you know, to ease you back into reality the morning after a night of intense partying. The album by KLF was called Chill Out, and it wasn't officially available at the time. Noel had somehow managed to get a copy of it on cassette, and he started playing it on the tour, day one of the American tour on the bus. He started playing his music, and it was mesmerising. It was beautiful. Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corty of the KLF, they spent some time in the States making field recordings, as they call them, so recordings of trains and sheep and you know people talking on the radio. So not sound effects, you know, CDs. This was like they, they actually went out with microphones and recorded all this shit. And they came back home and they composed some really beautiful, breathtaking music around it and it became Chill Out. And this album, to me, it became the soundtrack of that tour. And as the tour unfolded, we all managed to find it on CD in various towns on our travels. For some reason, you could get it on CD out in the States, but in England it just seemed to be available on cassette if you could find it. And whenever I hear that album now, I'm back there on that beautiful rock and roll buzz, cruising gently through the vast American landscape, roads that just go on forever without a single bend, and mountains and canyons and 
Prairies, more than any other album that I own, Chill Out by the KLF. It's the one that takes me off to a finite and precise moment in time. Me and my mates off to see America for the first time. Me and Mrs Boone had a bit of a shock in our garden one night last week. With spring setting in, we've had a couple of nice nights recently, haven't we? And uh, we've been able to do that thing where you go mooching around in the garden a bit early evening, planning some of the things that you're going to try and do, you know, through the, through the summer, through the year, some of those big jobs that you need doing. And we love our garden. It's, it, we spend a lot of time in there when the weather's nice. And Charlie does most of the actual gardening. She's great at that stuff. I just tidy up me, move things around and wait until Mrs B tells me to dig a hole or something for a new bush or whatever. <laughs> Although I did build a really cool pair of gates for our driveway last year. It didn't take long either. I'm dead chuffy them was. Funny thing though about them gates of mine, I bought some stain for them off the internet, like a protective sort of colouring thing. And I remember thinking as I was painting on, man, this stuff smells good. <laughs> Proper getting eye on it, like that. Letting on to neighbours. All right, Margaret, lovely day, isn't it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, so when I'd nearly finished it, I'd been on it for a couple of hours painting this stuff on. And I thought, I feel a bit weird. I'm going to just read small print on the back of this. And I read it and it said, Contains cyanide. Don't even think about using this shit without a special face mask. Something like that. I had to go and have a lie down. I thought, you know, you do, you start getting fit. I had to go have a lie down. <laughs> Taking really deep breaths in fresher and that. I renovated our shed, our ailing garden shed a couple of years ago. Patched it all up. Made it nice and painted it with some stuff from B&Q. It looks all right on the tin, the colour, but when I painted it, Charlie says it, it, she calls it baby shit brown. And we had a couple of wooden garden benches at the same time, which I did up to, um, we had a party in the garden, and so I thought, I'll make the benches nice. It's for Charlie's party. And I spent ages, got me got my carcher out, you know, my power washer carcher. <laughs> Stripped it back to the burr wood like that. Painted them, baby shit brown. It took about three days. They looked great, but they got nicked. Within 24 hours, they'd gone. Fucking scallies had them. Anyway, so a policeman comes. I'm on phone to the police. I'm studying guarding. Him writing his notes in his little book. And I'm sure that when cops writing those books, right, I think a lot of times they're just writing, blah, blah, fucking bore off, get alive. Who gives a fuck about you and your cheap B&Q benches? You know what I mean? That's Anyway, benefit of doubt. He's writing down me, all my information and that. And he says that he asked me to describe my benches. And I said, that's, that's dead easy, mate. I've got photographs that I took of them after I did them up. He's writing in his book again. He's actually got photographs of his fucking benches. Please kill me now. I want to go home and get drunk. Anyway, so he says, what colour would you describe that as? And I said, well, it's the same as that shed over there. And he says, right, so sort of like a baby shit brown. <laughs> no, I says to him, I says, my wife describes it as baby shit brown. And he said, she's pretty bang on there, isn't she? She writes in his book, baby shit brown benches. <laughs> Mrs Boone used to always tell me that I phone the police too often, right? Not 999, local police. I've got the number in my phone. But sometimes 999 as well. Probably 50-50, actually. And so it got to the point where when I phoned the local police, they'd be like that. Hello, Mr. Boone. What can we do for you today? Like, because they recognised my number or they put my name in, you know, Mr. Boone again. I'm stuck. What's up with him now? 
What's he fucking moaning about now? And I'll be like, oh, on the phone to him. What it is, right, there's, there's a bloke in, in a car outside my house. He's acting really suspiciously. He's on the phone. He's smoking. He keeps looking at our house. He's got a black... Oh, hang on a minute. Sorry, it's my mate, Iggy. It's my mate, You're right, Iggy. Won't be a minute. Sorry, sorry, officer. It's my mate, Iggy. I forgot he was coming around for a drink. Oh, sorry about it. See you later. So I don't I don't ring him as much anymore. I always think twice before phoning police and that. One of my other favourite things about a garden, we've got this battered old wooden... They call it a love seat, don't they? Like made of, uh, made of wood. It sits two people on it. It's got a bit of a pagoda effect on the top of it. And it was on its way to a tip until I spotted it on my mate Rigger's van. And I said, we'll have that. It's called Rigger. Rigger Ramon, uh, Ramon Gardening Care is the name of his company. If you need any uh, gardening doing in Stockport area. He changed his name many years ago. He's got about 20 middle names, right? Including Scooby-Doo and Big Jobbies. I think Big Jobbies is in there because apparently when he was a baby, he used to do massive turds. So, so Big Jobbies is one of his nicknames. <laughs> Aren't people cruel? Every time I look at this love seat, though, I remember the day that I painted it pink. It was a gorgeous day. It was the 11th of September, 2015. And I painted it with little tears in my eyes listening to the last ever breakfast show uh, with Tim and Jim on XFM Manchester. And then when I'd finished painting it, I washed my brushes, got changed, and I drove into XFM to do my last drive time show. So little memories everywhere looking in the garden. And I'll probably never paint that love seat again. Little moments in time and all that. Special moments in time. I might revisit the shed though at some point. I might have another look at that. <laughs> the most precious bit of our garden is our little Luna garden, which we uh, we built in 2012 when we lost our baby girl, Luna. We built a special border using stone from a local quarry that went and got. And we filled it with a couple of tonnes of soil. And we asked people not to bring cut flowers to Luna's funeral, but instead give us potted plants that we could plant in a special part of the garden. And we also planted daffodil bulbs in the middle of our lawn, which spell out Luna in massive letters. And four years on, they still come up every every new year. In fact, last year they came up at Christmas and they're absolutely beautiful. Forthcoming projects in the garden include um, a skate ramp. Hector, Hector Angel Boone, he's nine now, and he's recently completely caught the skateboarding bug. In fact, I'm thinking of doing an episode of Storytime soon devoted entirely to the world of skating. Anyway, so Hector wants me to build a full-size half-pipe or a dropping ramp out of wood. He's even downloaded some plans for one off the internet for me. So that's something to look forward to, isn't it? Anyway, so the other night, we're in the garden pottering about, and suddenly she lets out a scream, Snake! Snake! I shouted, you watch, Snake! I think there's a snake. I said, where, where, where? She said, I don't know, but there's loads of bloody snakeskin over here, look. So I go, I walks over to her. Sure enough, big pieces of snakeskin on the shrubbery, massive pieces of snakeskin, shedded. And you could tell by the size of the scales on it that this is a big snake, right? And at that point, health and safety boom leapt into action. I'm like, right, get the kids in the house, shut the doors and windows, go to the shed, get me a big shovel. I'm going to need my gloves, my safety goggles, get your phone ready in case I need to take pictures. Memory's full on mine. <laughs> my memory's always full on my phone. Started looking around, anyway, got my phone out, ready to phone police again. I'm thinking, this will go down well, I've just sent the same copper as last time. Anyway, then here, Charlie again. There's more here, look, look, there's more here, there's more here. <laughs> Proper panicking. So sure enough, we've got this little vegetable patch and I went over there and I'd look and there's, there's more snake skin. And one piece which proved we were dealing with an actual snake here, a big snake, shaped exactly like a snake's head. And we're proper breaking it now. We're like looking around thinking, God, these buggers can strangle you, can't they? And I think I, think I actually had my left hand on the front of my neck in case a snake came out and went for my throat. I'm not even sure if snakes do that. Rats do though, don't they, I think? 
Is that true? Is that another urban myth? The fact that if you corner a rat, it'll it'll go for your neck. But I think what it actually is is that if you corner a rat, it'll try and jump over your head to escape. But either because their eyesight isn't that good, or because the legs are too short, or the bellies are too full of stolen chicken eggs, they end up hitting you in the neck, something like that. I think that's anyway, something on my neck. iPhone set to police local. Kids all locked in the house, spared at the ready. I have his jacket on and all that. And then, and then I saw him. Not a snake. I was scarecrow with his lovely long white hair and his long floppy hands made of straw. His little hat with a big daisy on front of it, whatever. He's got a red tartan shirt on, and he stood there in our vegetable patch, and his waistcoat made from yellow synthetic fabric, which looks exactly like snake skin. It was all hanging off, shredded and bedraggled around his shoulders because we'd had storms recently and it ripped his waistcoat to bits and scattered all pieces of this fabric all over the garden. And Scarecrow stood there like a smile on his face and a bamboo cane up his ass. And I'm like, that, yeah, mate, nice one for that. Cheers. Take me in, oh tender woman. Take me in for heaven's sake. Take me in, tender woman. On each episode of Storytime with Boone, I choose a song that I've written at some point in my career and I try to explain what inspired it. This week I'm going to tell you what made me write a song called Sleep Well Tonight for the Inspiral Carpet's second album, Beast Inside. The full version of the song is on the Spotify playlist that I've put together to go with this episode, so check it out when you get a time. After a gig in Washington in June of 1990 at the 930 Club, I got talking to a woman who was a fan of the band. She was called Sheila and she mentioned that she knew some people that were... Uh, Camping outside the White House, Thomas and Ellen, they devoted the, the lives to campaigning for a nuclear-free world. And they're now living in a tent right outside the White House in Lafayette Park, right opposite the White House there. So they had no home, no worldly possession, just a pet dog, and an intense passion to make the world a better place through nuclear disarmament. And the more she talked about them, the more I thought, I'd really like to go meet them, you know, but we weren't in a rush to leave town. And she drove me off to the White House and, sure enough, right opposite the White House, load of tents full of people campaigning for a more peaceful world. And the camp had been set up by Thomas, who I was about to meet in 1981. And soon after that, a lady called Conchita, or Connie, became involved. So Connie then spent the next 34 years of her life camping right there at the front of Lafayette Park on Pennsylvania Avenue, directly opposite the White House. She only passed away a few months ago, January of 2016, Conchita died. Ellen, who I was also about to meet, she joined the peace camp in 1984 and uh, she and Thomas married soon after that. So that night back in 1990, we walked along this line of tents and ramshackle shelters. Some of them were just like bits of wood and plastic sheets and all that, until we came to Ellen and Thomas's tent. And Sheila just said, you know, quietly, Ellen, Thomas, are you, are you guys home? This was about 11 o'clock at night. And the front of the tent opened and out pops three faces, Ellen, Thomas and the dog, which was called Midnight. Thomas's full name was William Thomas Hallenbeck, and uh, Thomas was his nickname. And he told me that he'd been a jeweller back in the day. Ellen had been a dentist, I think. Two very successful career people who just felt inspired enough to dispose of everything and live outside the system, try to make the world a better place. We chatted for a while, sat on the ground outside the tent with the dog Midnight curled up next to us there. And they told me some of the stories. So we talked about how Thomas had been uh, arrested over a dozen times in the first couple of years of uh, setting up his protest outside the White House. He kept getting arrested just for being there, really. Just being there on the pavement or on the grass. 
and they'd often suffered at the hands of overzealous policing as well in the early days. But generally, the authorities had become a bit more sympathetic over the years to this, this peaceful protest. The deal was that as long as the camp was occupied by at least one person, it would be allowed to stay there. But if it was ever left unattended, it had all be removed and destroyed as abandoned equipment or whatever. Which did actually happen once. There was one occasion where the bloke who'd been left in charge of it wandered off somewhere one night and the authorities quickly moved in and cleared the lot. But, you know, to the credit, when the protesters did appeal and said, we want our gear back, they were giving everything back, all the signs, all the sheltered paraphernalia and all that, so that they could carry on this uh, peaceful protest. I asked Thomas at the time if any of the presidents who'd been in power in that 10 years since he'd started the camp, have any of the presidents ever popped over to say, well, I think uh, Ronald Reagan and George Bush it would have been. And he just pissed himself. He said, no, he said, they've never been over, but I do live in hope. I do live in hope. They told us about the time that Tommy came to London and he ripped his passport into little pieces and threw it all into a river so that he became a man of no particular race. He was unidentifiable. And it was his way of protesting against the United States foreign policy at the time. He'd completely fallen out of love with his homeland. He'd travelled all around the world looking for answers to a lot of important questions that he had to do with politics and religion. He just did not want to go back to America. But the British authorities forced him to go back. They decided to pack him off back to the USA in 1980. And the first attempt failed when immediately after a bunch of British policemen had loaded him onto a plane at Heathrow and they waited for the door to shut so they knew that he was on it. And he walked to the back of the plane and he just found an escape hatch and he opened it and he jumped down onto the runway like 15, 20 feet and legged it as the plane was ready for taking off. He got away, just escaped. Made his way back to London and soon after that he got arrested again and put on another plane. But this time the police sat with him and took him all the way to New York to make sure that he didn't... Uh, jump out the hatch again. And that's when he decided what he was going to do next. So it's 1981, and he set up his peace camp right outside the White House. And today, it is the longest-running peace vigil in the USA, probably in the world, and maybe even in history. 35 years of demonstration, peaceful demonstration against nuclear arms. Tommy had been jailed in uh, several countries on his travels as a peace campaign. He spent a few months in an Egyptian jail because he tried swimming across the Suez Canal. He ended up getting shot at. <laughs> they shot at him he had to give himself up they put him in jail and Ellen also spent time in prison in the US because of issues caused by her times as a peaceful protester sadly Thomas passed away in 2009 but long before he died he created a bill called Proposition 1 and basically it was a sort of template a list of ideas which he believed governments should use in order to reduce the world's nuclear warheads to eventually, as he hoped, zero. That's all he wanted in life. He wanted no nuclear missiles left on the planet. Alan went on to devote her life to spreading the word about Proposition 1, not just in the USA, but around the world as well. So politicians have now started listening to Alan, Alan Thomas. She's still very active in that world. And I did hear that Bill Clinton did pop over for a chat with them. Uh, the peace campaigners on one occasion a few years later. So the message is getting through, isn't it, to the big boys, slowly but surely. People are aware of what these protests are and people are starting to talk to them. The lyrics for the song that I wrote about Ellen and Thomas, uh, it's called Sleep Well Tonight. The lyrics started coming to me as we were sat there with the dog and everything. I was just like, I just simplified it to Ellie and Tommy rather than Ellen and Thomas. It was an easy song to write. I just put this beautiful story into three simple verses and then give it a big chorus, throw your caution into the wind, throw your papers into the river, promise it'll never go dark for the people in the park. I wanted to capture the feeling that I had of complete awe at the incredible passion that these people had for that cause. And I felt privileged to have met them. I know now that I was very privileged to have met them. Living under a plastic sheet through blizzards and intense heat waves, never faltering in the devotion 
dedication like I've never seen and never forget, as it says at the end of the song. I do believe that the world needs people like Ellen and Thomas, you know, people who love the world that we live in. And they want to make it a better place, not just for us, but for our children and for children around the world. It's not even just an American thing. It's like Ellen and Thomas wanted the world to be better for everybody. I never got to meet Ellen and Thomas again. It was only recently that I heard that Thomas had died in 2009. But it's amazing that the peace camp is still there 35 years after Thomas set it up. These disciples of peace enthusiastically giving out flyers and chatting to tourists 24-7, 365 days a year for 35 years. Think about that. As you listen to this, those people are still on that same spot carrying on Thomas's work. And to me, that shows more love for our planet than any single politician has ever shown. Ellen, if you ever hear this, you're a wonderful person and I do believe that one day you and your late husband, Thomas, will be made saints. And Thomas, sleep well, man, tonight and every night. One day, your dream will come true. Last week on Storytime with Boone, I told you about our friend Jo Watson, uh, our friend who's a midwife, and the fact that she's uh, offered us two bunny rabbits that need a new home. And I basically said, my wife wants them. I wasn't sure. And I asked you, the podcast listeners, to vote on whether you thought we should have these uh, these little bunny rabbits for the Boone boys. And uh, I'm glad to tell you, uh, <laughs> a unanimous, unanimous vote, every single message I got was, have the rabbits, have the rabbits. Hashtag Project Rabbits. Take the rabbits. So thank you very much uh, for all your messages. Uh, we have told Joe now that we want the rabbits and the Boom boys are very excited. So big thanks from all the Boom family and, and from the rabbits as well. I don't even know the names yet. I don't even know the names. I'll, I'll announce that in a, a future episode. But uh, thank you. And uh, yes, the Boom family's just got two bunny rabbits bigger. <laughs> and if you go chasing rabbits and you know Nice one, top one, get yourself sorted. It's time for me to get off again, so thanks for downloading this podcast, as always. I hope you've enjoyed it. The Spotify playlist I put together for each episode of Storytime, it does feature complete versions of the songs on each episode and others I might have mentioned in the story. Sometimes just tracks are inspired by the stories I'm telling. Make sure you get on there and check out those tunes, especially the KLF tracks uh, that I've put. In fact, just go out and buy Chill Out, the album. It will make your life better. If you get a minute, leave some comments on my iTunes page, assuming that they are positive <laughs> comments. And if you fancy watching me and Rick Witter in conversation for a live recording at Red's True Barbecue in Manchester next week for episode 18, go back to the beginning of this podcast for all the information on how you could be there. It's going to be limited to 50 people, so first come, first serve. Thanks as always to my friends at Distorted Productions for making this all sound ace. 
And if you're into new, unsigned or undiscovered music, check out my other podcast, which is called Set to Go. It's also available uh, as a free download on iTunes. I like to end each episode of Storytime in Boone uh, with a piece of unsigned music. Today, I'm going to leave you with an artist called Seeker. It's the new project from a North London-based singer-songwriter, uh, producer Kieran Hungin. The track I'm going to leave you with is called After I'm Gone, and the biographer Seeker reads, Living in the city but ever influenced by nature and its vast grip on the man-made world, Kieran Hungin crafts songs in her home studio in an attempt to make a human connection. The music is as emotionally scattered as the creator, tussling between fragility and force, light and dark and what lies between, intimate and fragile in places, laced with a passion and anger that is forging away out. A bit like an average human mind, it says here. Kieran goes on to say that, I'm just trying to be honest, sometimes it isn't pretty, but... If it has integrity, that's all that matters to me, really. Nice words from Kieran. Uh, this is Seeker, and I'm going to leave this gorgeous track called After I'm Gone. See you next week. Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. Change